0: Morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend. And I want to extend a special good morning to Watertown today and pray that God blesses you. Pastor Aaron and his family will be hosting Watertown this morning, so that'll be fun for all of them. I'm excited about what I get to share with you today. It's on the topic of lust. Yay, right? Let me read you some words of Jesus here, um, and uh, this will set us up for this morning. It's from the, the Gospel of John. Listen to this exchange that took place between uh, our Lord and Savior Christ and a Samaritan woman. So he, Jesus, left Judea and went back once, again, uh, once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, And the man you have are now, uh, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. This is an amazing encounter. Uh, Jesus converses with really what we would consider a very promiscuous woman. Not only was he conversing with a woman, which was unusual in that era, he was talking to a woman of, you know, questionable reputation. He was having a conversation with her. And this woman was doing what so many people do. She was substituting for love in her life. She was substituting a a cheap alternative for love. She had many men, and basically she had a lifestyle of promiscuity. And she was thinking that would satisfy her soul, and it would never satisfy her soul. This morning we're going to talk for a few moments on the vice of lust. And so if you're a note taker, that's the first note in your note guide. Um, this vice in our life of lust is to be displaced by the corresponding virtue of purity. But the means of getting from lust to purity is not what you would think. It's by the means of grace that God has provided us called love. It's by knowing how to love correctly that we begin to displace lust and actually operate in the realm of of purity. Let me give you some background on this exchange between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Samaritans, like most of us today, we're of mixed race. Very few people I know have one heritage, right? So like you look at myself, I'm almost all Norwegian, but I have some German in there, which is all right, that's a family joke, but we won't go there. At any anyway, rate, so the Samaritans at, of, of Christ's era, they were partly Jewish in their nationality and partly Assyrian in their nationality, and they were looked down upon by the Jews of that era. Now, let me give you kind of a, a, a difference here that will make this really um, kind of well-known to you, their differences. The uh, Samaritans called the city that Christ met up with this woman in, um, they called that city Shechem, which means city of oak. Strong, strong city, right? The Jews called the same town Sichar, meaning city of drunkenness. Are you getting a difference there? The Samaritans were saying, we live in a town that's an oak. And the Jews say, No, you live in a town of drunkenness. Right there, you see the rift. And so this woman is startled. She's surprised with Jesus being a Jew, would actually even talk to her. You're, you're talking to me? Really? You guys don't talk to us. You look down on us. And get this Jesus showed up at the well at what time of day? Do you remember? Noon, thank you. You know when they used to draw water in that culture? Early in the morning or late in the evening. You never went to the well at noon unless you didn't want to run into anybody. She didn't want to run into anybody. And so she was at the well at noon. And Jesus articulates very quickly that she was a woman under the control of the vice of lust. He says, you've had five husbands, and the one you're living with right now is not your husband. You're living for the wrong things. He just reveals that to her, that you're, you're trying to find in sexual relationships what, you're, uh, what the love, and you'll never find that love. First Corinthians tells us this, that love endures through all things. But get this, lust endures very little. Five husbands, and now the man you're with is not even your husband. It has no lasting quality to it. It's based on desire and not commitment. Have you ever watched Desperate Housewives? Hopefully none of you have. I've never watched that show. Um, Anyway, if you have now, I've embarrassed you, haven't I? But it's about uh, these women that live in this little neighborhood, and they're bored with their marriages, and it's all about affairs and illicit things from what I understand. Here's an interesting twist to the show. This is my point. <laughs> they all live on Wisteria Lane. They live on Wisteria Lane. Now, Wisteria is the name of a vine that grows on something stable, like a tree or a house or whatever. It spreads rapidly and entangles that, that healthy tree and usually causes it to die. I think we have a picture of a Wisteria. There you go. This is a Wisteria vine. It it, it just strangles what it grows on. It it takes the life right out of it. It brings death. So unless you know that, you don't know. The authors are kind of smart. They're saying all these people live in this promiscuous life doing all these affairs. they're, They're living on Wisteria Lane. They're living in a place that strangles the life right out of them and causes death to show up. See, lust is like that Wisteria vine that strangles the life it grows on. Lust in the life of a person will strangle out intimacy. It's a real problem. 29. I was reading some of this. I'm just kind of shocked. I'm old. I understand I'm old. I'm a little prudish, all right? I'm going to say that. Um, Maybe old-fashioned would be a better way of saying it, or maybe not old-fashioned. I don't know. 29% of Americans say they've had sex on their first date. 29%. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, and I don't know the criteria for the survey, um, but if that's true, that's a, that's a disaster, amen? The average man will have 20 partners in his lifetime, while the average woman will have six. Again, that math doesn't add up there. Think about that, but you, it'll come to you. Three-fourths of our TV shows contain an explicit moment. It works towards some kind of a love scene. I would call it a lust scene because they can't be in love yet. They don't know each other well enough, but they work towards that. And the sad thing is that we think this is normal. And if someone like myself speaks out against it, I'm told that I'm out of touch and not realistic. Really? This stuff is normal? No, it isn't. It's not normal. It's dysfunctional. Are you with me on that? It's dysfunctional. When we start thinking it's normal, we're dysfunctional. Now, lust is a lot bigger than just a sexual issue. It's a huge issue. But this morning, I don't have time to talk on all the various aspects of lust, so it's going to be kind of narrow and more to relationships, okay? Just so you know that, I don't think that's its only way it's manifested. But get this, pride is probably the most primal sin. We've talked about that. It's the sin behind all the other sins. Lust is probably the most popular sin. I mean, it's used for everything. It sells trucks, right? It sells toothpaste. Most novels, most movies move uh, quickly to some kind of of a sex scene, because they think that's essential for the success of that movie or novel. And so let's talk on what lust is for a few moments, okay? Very simply defined, it's this. It is an inordinate craving for the pleasures of the body. It's being body-driven, impulse-driven, that and that can take on many forms, right? But lust, in its simplest definition, is an inordinate craving for the pleasure of the body, and that drives you as a person. Now, in the context of what I'm sharing with you this morning, it's an inappropriate sexual attraction. I found this research that's really illuminating. I was researching some of this, and there's a lot of material on this, by the way. <laughs> you can research this thing to death. But I found this really interesting. Some researchers that studied brain activity uh, said that lust lights up the brain in the same areas as an addict's brain does on drugs. It lights the brain up the same way. And what they're saying by that is it's a super addictive thing. Okay? Super addictive. And I, I don't know about you, but when I heard that, I thought, oh, that makes sense. That's why people struggle with pornography so much. It's, it's an addiction issue. It's very similar to being uh, on on drugs. And I thought, oh, yeah, so you kind of almost have to treat this like you would treat an addiction. And I don't want to spend too much time on the front end of this topic, but I want to just say this. There's a deadly progression that often takes place uh, when lust is beginning to you know, really take over a person's life. It often begins with imagination. It, uh, you're, it's not even like you're planning it. I, I, are you a mall watcher? Do you go to malls anybody ever? Anybody go to malls here ever? You don't do that in South Dakota, do you? A little bit of my Twin Cities boy just came out. (laughs) We used to go to the mall. There are no malls, are there, in Brookings? I just realized, well, there's little ones. But anyway, so I I, I go to the mall sometimes, and I'm not a real big fan of shopping, but I like to watch the people. And every now and then you'll see, you know, a girl go by in some outfit that maybe isn't uh, modest. How's that for saying it in a nice way? And, and she'll walk by. And I like to watch all the men. Watch her. Okay? They're masterful at taking what I call the second look without making it noticeable. Like all of a sudden, you've got to tie your shoe so you can bend down and look backwards. Or they're kind of like looking around. They'll do the glance over the shoulder. It's discreet. And I just, I just want to go up to them and say, Man, that was good. You were smooth. You did that. Nobody even saw you, but I saw you do it. And, and that happens a lot. Just do it sometime. Go to a place like that and, and watch somebody go by that maybe isn't dressed appropriately or whatever might be the case, and then watch what happens. It's just hilarious if it wasn't so sad. But oftentimes what happens when lust begins to take a hold of us, we weren't really expecting it. It's an un, un, um, unexpected thing like that in a shopping situation it might be you're on your computer and all of a sudden something pops up on the screen right anybody have those i go where'd that come from you know delete 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 get it out of here where, where what in the world you know and and so there, there's it's not yet a problem unless you begin to what linger on it and imagine a little bit what would that be like for me I want to just say this right now when it comes to this topic matter. God says there is no temptation in our lives but what is common to people. And he will provide an escape if we're willing to step into it. Amen? And so oftentimes you want to cut lust off at the knees, don't look a second time. Don't, don't think about it. Don't let it begin to tantalize you right? You just cut that baby off at the knees. But then what happens frequently in this progression, and I call it a deadly progression, is fantasy begins to take place. And that's when we begin to own the problem. We begin to recall it from memory. We begin to, you know, become the source of of the lust. No longer is it something that's happening to us. We're embracing it, and now it's coming from us. I find this appalling. Even in the Christian world, you hear this frequently. Some believe as long as you don't touch and you don't act out on something, you can think whatever you want. And, and I go, no, 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 no. That's where the, that's where the warfare takes place. That's where it all starts. Um, they think as long as I don't act on it or, 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 you know, do something inappropriately out loud outside my body that no one will get hurt. First of all, you're getting hurt right because something's controlling you the wisteria vine is growing in your life secondly especially if you're thinking of another person you just turn that person into an object and you're denigrating them you're you're making them less than what they are and that my friends is nothing more than or less than a sin it's wrong to think of somebody in that kind of a sense Um, And I I tell you, I want to expand this now a little bit more broadly for you than just thinking about, say, uh, the sexual thing, okay? Um, I don't know how you are, but oftentimes when I face rough things in my life, I've had this tendency to do what I call escape. Mental daydreaming, thinking about, "Wow, what would life be like if I didn't have to deal with this issue and and uh i can go through a big scenario and pretty soon i'm living there do you anybody do that beside me i do maybe you haven't had a hard enough life yet if you don't do that but i would do a lot of escaping in in terms of uh, uh of dealing with problems at times and um i remember one time it was almost like an audible voice from god saying stop it you're sinning When you do that, you cut off my grace to you because my grace is sufficient for whatever you're facing. But if you're escaping that and mentally going someplace else and wishing for something else to be taking place rather than the reality you're living in, that's wrong. And I begin to confess that as a sin in my life and say, you know, what I'm doing basically is longing for a different situation. And a sense I'm lusting for that versus the situation that I find myself in. And God will work, but we have to stay present to where he's doing the work. Amen? Do you see what I'm saying here? I mean, this is a little little bit more difficult to understand, but you, you get what I'm getting at. All right. When fantasy is embraced, lust has become full-blown wisteria at this point. And that vine now is strangling your life, and you guess what happens next? Oftentimes, people act out. So there's an acting out, and... The person has stepped into the no-flying zone. Um, they're doing what they ought not to do. Uh, the wisteria uh, vine is now blooming in victory over such a person, and that person's underneath its death. But oftentimes, we, we see the person acting out, and we think, how'd you get there? Well, it began back here. Inappropriate imagination. Fantasizing and then acting out. King David went through this very kind of uh, sequence when he committed adultery with the beautiful Bathsheba. So he's out on the palace porch, looking around, and he sees his gal bathing. What should he have done? Right there. What should he have done? Just walk away. Turn around. Give her a privacy. Amen. Right. Turn around. You haven't done anything wrong. You just happen to fear. But then he let it go into his mind. And I am really sure this happened. He began to fantasize, what would it be like to be with her? He began to own it. He began to think on it. Because you know why? He made plans for it to happen. And using his kingly position and power, he calls another man's wife to his house and commits adultery with her. He acted out on it. There was an imagination. There was a fantasy in the acting out on it. And then, you know what? You see the devastating effects of it in his life. If you read Psalm 1, it's nothing more than the devastating effects of that affair with Bathsheba in his life. He said to the Lord, 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 take this thing away from me. Against you and you only have I sinned. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I don't feel any joy anymore. What I feel is rottenness of the bones because I've committed this thing. The wisteria vine is choking the life right out of me, to use our analogy today. And he said, create in me again a pure heart. I want to be pure before you get it. I want to see your face. And all this stuff is in my way. Amen. And if you know where Psalm 51 is coming from and you know what David has done, the whole thing kind of makes sense to you. Lust is a cheap cheap imitation of love. Two monks. Two monks, I'm to an illustration now. We're standing next to a rambling brook when a beautiful woman came to the river's edge and asked if one of them would carry her Over the brook in his arms so she wouldn't have to get wet. One monk, staying true to his vows, turned his eyes to look away from her while the other one swooped down, picked her up, and carried her across the river. Once on dry ground, he set the woman down, and the two monks went along their way. For the next mile or so, it was quiet. Neither monk said a word until the one who looked away let his frustrations go. I'm so ashamed of you, brother. You have broken your vow. You have not only looked upon a woman, you touched her as well. You carried her. To which the other one replied, are you still carrying her? I put her down way back there at the edge of the river. Evidently, you're still carrying her. Lust causes us to hold an image that we should put down. Maybe a long, long time ago. So for the rest of the morning, I want to talk with you on how to stop carrying lust. How to stop it from being a dominant part of your life because it's to be displaced in your life by purity. But if you tell the addicted one to porn to stop looking at porn and think pure thoughts, <laughs> that's not going to work very well. They're not going to do it. In fact, I want to tell you if someone's addicted to someone, something and you tell them to stop doing that addiction, they're going to think on it more and more and more. You're just going to kind of like throw gasoline onto the problem. Um, getting to purity isn't found by disciplining yourself by sheer willpower, to stop thinking incorrectly. Instead, we got to step into the means of grace that God has provided for us. We need to begin to love correctly. We need to begin to love uh, correctly. And so if we want to move from lust to purity, the means of grace is, is love. So the means of grace from lust to purity is, is love. So there's our little bridge diagram here for this particular message. Once again, if we want to cross that bridge that God has provided for us and move from lust controlling our lives to purity being a virtue that we experience, the means of grace then is biblical love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through 7 describes love for us. But I want you to listen carefully. When I read this section of scripture, because I know we hear it at weddings all the time, and we we often hear it when we talk on this topic of love, but listen to whom the scripture tells us to direct our affections. Listen to how it's pointing us as a follower of God. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is Does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Do you notice in that scripture the great amount of attention that says, if I love, it's how I treat other people? Do you notice? That's basically that scripture. Because most of us are very patient with ourselves naturally. Some of us are a little impatient, but when it says love is patient, it's basically saying love is patient with whom? Other people. Love is kind. With whom? Yourself? You're naturally kind to yourself. Come on. Even when you're really mad at yourself, you still have a bowl of cereal. Amen? You still eat. You still take care of yourself. You usually groom and shower and all that kind of stuff. It's directing us to our attitude towards others. It's making us aware that love is concerned with others and their welfare. This is all over in Scripture. This is all over in Scripture. I mean, God demonstrated this kind of love in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he didn't say, oh, I love you, I want to give you a big cuddly hug. No, he said, I love you so much that I'm going to send you my only son that he can die for you so that we can be in relationship. I love you so much, I'm going to think of your welfare. And your welfare demands that someone dies for your sins. God's love demonstrates how we're to love. If that's not clear enough, go to 1 John 4, verses 9 through 10. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's making it really clear that God said, I love, therefore I'm going to think of your welfare. And then 1 John three sixteen says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So get this biblical love, biblical love that displaces lust, is concerned with the welfare of others, first and foremost. Thomas Merton was a mystic monk and writer. I read a little bit of his story, a little bit of his history. I'm not all sure who he was or what he really thought. But he did write a book, No Man is an Island, and there's a chapter I want to quote to you this morning from. It's called Love Can Only Be Kept by Giving It Away. Listen to this. It's very challenging. I hope it challenges you today. I hope it disturbs you just a little bit. Listen to what he says. He said, A happiness that is sought for ourselves can never be found. Did you hear that? So if you say, I want to be happy, and you make your life about being happy, he's saying, You will never be happy. Can't be found. For a happiness that is diminished by being shared with others is not big enough to make us happy. So if we think life is about making me happy and who cares about the rest of humanity, he says, that's too small. It'll never work. Two happiness is found in unselfish love, a love which increases in proportion as it is shared. Infinite sharing is the law of God's inner life. He has made the sharing of ourselves the law of our own being so that it is in loving others that we best love ourselves. Now, does that sound a little different from what we hear today? I can't love anybody else so I learn how to love myself. Don't we hear that all the time? Come on. Do you not hear that? You're just kind of looking at me. Maybe you, I hear this all the time. Well, I have to learn how to love myself so I can love others. No, no. Merton is saying, "Uh uh-uh. You need to love others so you know how to love yourself. That's kind of different, isn't it? Not not only prefers the good of another to my own, but it does not even compare the two. It has only one good, that of the beloved, which is, at the same time, my own. Love shares the good with another by not dividing it with him, but by identifying itself with him, so that his good becomes my good. And I thought, man, I don't love like that. How about you? I was really challenged. I, I have to work on this thing, so... Uh, Let me give you this point, and I want to talk about practicing love for a few moments with you. If you practice love as described in the Bible, this will move you towards purity because it will displace lust. So let's talk about practicing love for just a few moments. First of all, really, really important, make it a practice to remind yourself that you're in a love relationship with your Heavenly Father Make it a practice. Do it frequently to remind yourself, I am in a love relationship with my heavenly Father. 1 John 3.1 says this, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. So when we're overwhelmed by this love of God that he has for us, when we're meditating on it, guess what? That begins to keep you from the false promises of lust because your cup is filled up with that which is healthy. God fills the voids of your life. Consider this. Lust will fill in the voids that are not filled in by love. Right? Because you're trying to get some needs satisfied in the wrong way. Receive the love of God this morning. Pray for it. If you don't know what it means, pray for it. You know, ask God to grace your heart, to love Him, and to receive His love as you ought to be. To see the healthier you are in that regard, the more it displaces lust from your life. And you're entering the sacred ground of purity then. We've talked on this next point a little bit, but let me put it into a point for you. Love sees and cares for others, like Thomas Merton was saying. Love sees and cares for others. It never reduces another person to an object, which is the essence of pornography and lust. Sexually speaking, it's what I call objectifying other people, making them there for your pleasure, and that's alone what they're. It's devaluing them as a human being. Love sees and cares for others. Amen? And when we begin to have that kind of love, it puts us on this sacred ground of purity. Love practices is the discipline of restraint. This is probably my favorite. Love practice is the discipline of restraint. Let me tell you what I mean uh, by this. This means whether you're male or female, you will not make coarse jokes or sexual innuendos. I just won't do that. I'm going to be restrained that way. I will not feed central desires in my person by watching explicit television Or listening to the humor that that desensitizes me to the sacredness of another human being. Try that when you watch your movies. You're going to fast forward through a lot of stuff. Vicki does it a lot. She, you know, because there's explicit stuff all over the place, and it desensitizes you to the sacredness of other human beings. I will set boundaries in my own life, whether you're male or female, about meeting alone with the opposite sex, whether they're single or married or vice versa, it doesn't matter. And I'm going to have these boundaries that are healthy, that protect my heart. Amen? I know in this new generation they're saying, well, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it does. That yeah, does. Just think on that. I'll not say something in a private conversation to somebody of the office of success, especially that is sensual, that I wouldn't say in public. If you won't say it in public, don't say it in private. Amen? Simple rule of thumb. Amen? Right? I'm not getting a lot of amens here right? I'll pray that God guards my heart from inappropriate desires and affections. When I was a young man, I read the covenant of Job, and I took that out as my own covenant. I will, not, I will make a covenant with my eyes not to look at a woman lustfully. I made a covenant with my eyes. Job did that. It's a good covenant to make. This is maybe the most important one. I will not let impulses or the want of something drive my decision-making, That moves us into our general category of lust. Because a lot of people lust after a fancy car or a great house. Or they want fine clothing or shoes or I see a neat tool, I'm a tool freak. I may never use that tool in my whole life, but boy, I want it bad when I see it. How about you guys? Anybody relate to me on that? Look at that tool, I could use that someday. I got a garage full of tools I could use someday. We do this with recreation and vehicles and vacations and foods. You have to make a decision. I will not be one who is impulse or desire-driven because that's the essence of lust. Augustine believed that we cannot live life without love or joy. And if we do, we'll become addicted to lust or pleasure. So the, the more we practice this love, the more I think it moves us into the sacred ground of purity. Let me just talk about the virtue of purity for just a minute and then we're closing out. There's a great promise made by Jesus. It's made in this teaching on the, on the Sermon on the Mount. It's called uh, the Beatitudes. It's part of the Beatitudes. It, and it's verse 8 of chapter 5 in Matthew. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Now pure means someone who's clean and so from the pollution and guilt of the sin, free from Uh, impure mixture and when you have lust in your life you're an impure mixture and this this whole idea of see here is so revealing the word see here in this promise of jesus for they shall see god means to gaze with wide-eyed wonderment at something remarkable not mere act of seeing, but also the perception of some object, to experience a revelation, to partake and share in something. So what is being said here and promised by Jesus is, if you're pure in heart, you're going to be able to stare at God in wide-eyed wonderment and see him for who he is. That's why purity is so important. Because lust clouds the vision. Lust cuts you off with your enemies from God and from other people. And it gets you into that place of death where the wisteria vine is choking the life right out of you. But if we choose to practice love like God says to practice love in his word to us, if we begin to that, it displaces that lust and we move into this realm of purity and then guess what? we can behold God with wide-eyed wonderment and begin to realize what life is really all about. Amen? And that's why this is such an important topic. So anyway, I'm going to stop there. At this point, I'm going to dismiss Watertown over to Pastor Aaron and pray that you guys have a great Memorial Day tomorrow and that uh, you enjoy the time with your families. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord God, I know that this is us, uh, us. I don't want to say a strange subject matter but since we're going through the seven deadly sins I guess it makes sense that we get to lust sooner or later. But I want to I want to pray for us as the people of God here that we would love biblically that that would be the takeaway that and that love is always oriented towards others and the well-being, the welfare of others. It's always about How do I bless somebody else? How do I think well of somebody else? How do I, you know, help them in their lives? And I tell you, when we start loving like that, when we start really making that our objective and the place that we're moving towards, it just just takes the the, uh, wind right out of the sails of lust. And so I pray, Lord, that you would grace us to love well here as a church and to love especially those out in the community who don't know you who are far from you to help love them well, Lord. Would you grace us to be that kind of people? And then I know we get into the sacred ground of purity then when we do that and we can look at you with wide-eyed wonderment, Lord. And I, just, I don't know about anybody else here today, but I gotta. I know that's my heart's desire just to know you and to see you clearly, Jesus. So as we finish up this morning singing this song to you, Lord, in a moment of uh, just a uh, Out loud worship, would you bless us with the infilling of the person of the Holy Spirit? And Holy Spirit, I pray that you, you would enable us to love and love well as we're called to as God's children. We pray these things in your name and by your blood, Jesus, and all God's people said,